0: Hey, welcome to a special bonus episode of These Go to 11. I am Zach Bartles. Uh, Not with me right now is Nathan. Our regular episode for this week will be tomorrow, Friday evening, starting at about 10 o'clock so that it goes to 11. Today, though, we're going to start kind of a new practice here, and that is that from time to time we're going to share with you sermons. Uh, Mine will be my own sermons, and I'm hoping also uh, when Greg or maybe Steve uh, preaches something that really uh, touches Nathan's heart. and He wants to share it with the rest of us. Uh, he will also do a similar thing and put it up uh, in the feed here. Uh, this message is one that I preached this past Sunday. It is from 1 Corinthians 15:22 through 58, and it is called The Last Frenemy. I hope that it challenges you and comforts you and you find it edifying today as you listen. Now, a couple of you this morning have asked me if there's a typo in the bulletin where the, the name of the message is written out, the last frenemy, what does that mean? Is it, is it supposed to say friend slash enemy? Or what? Well, it's a word that I've been hearing more and more lately. I thought it was a brand new word, like the internet came up with it, but apparently the word frenemy was actually coined in the 1950s. It's just that it has gotten more and more popular lately with certain television shows and this sort of thing. I don't know. Sean knows all about that, like Gossip Girl or something. But... The word is obviously a combination of friend and enemy, which makes it an oxymoron, a kind of word that you almost say, could that even have a meaning? And at the end of the day, it, it doesn't mean a half friend, half enemy. A, a frenemy is an enemy, it's just one that you treat very cordially or maybe with even kind of an overly affectionate sense as a thin veneer over the sort of hostility and, and all the, the uh, maybe jealousy or rivalry that's underneath the surface. Think Thomas Jefferson and John Adams or uh, Perry the Platypus and Dr. Doofenshmirtz. Right? Or if Richard was here, he would say, like Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian? And I'd be like, yeah, if that helps. This is the kind of people who... Seem to be friends, but they're actually enemies. And this, this word came to mind in reading this text. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, death is called an enemy. The ultimate enemy, in fact. And yet, in the church, and sometimes in the scriptures, and often in the culture, death is portrayed as if it were a friend. A misunderstood friend, but a friend all the same death is someone we want to actually reach out and hold hands with and and it's one of those things where we ask the question is is death an enemy is death a friend can there be a frenemy situation is this possibly one of those holy paradoxes one of these theological tensions we've been talking about for months in our Sunday school class you know like god is three and god is one christ is human christ is divine uh, God elected you from before the foundation of the earth. You it, it chose to follow Him and, and put your faith in Him. At the end of the day, though, it it can't work that way, because friend and enemy aren't just it's not just tension. There's not just mystery. There's an actual contradiction. If I'm your friend, you trust me. You're vulnerable with me. you you're not keeping you know me in front of you so that you can keep an eye on me if i'm your enemy you've always got one eye on me because i might be coming for you and you will never know when and if you're thinking well pastor zach i don't have enemies yeah you do don't try to be holier than jesus he had enemies and he assumed you would as well when he told you to love them and pray for them and so we know who our friends are and who our enemies are where does death fall into that is, is de- that death our friend or our enemy, as Scripture seems to say here? And how should we then relate to death, our own impending death, or the death of a loved one, or a friend, or a relative, or someone in the church? Should we weep? Should we be sad? Should we be angry? I- is it possible that death was our enemy and now has become our friend, like uh, Loki? Loki? My fellow nerds, right? In in the uh, first Avengers movie, for my my non-nerds out there, Loki was like the main bad guy, but everyone liked him, all the fans. And so in the later movies, he sort of became a good guy. And I'm going, wait, isn't this the guy who attacked New York and killed all these innocent people? Well, he's become good now. Is that maybe what happened with death? A a change of heart? A change of nature? And I'm going to answer that first. No. Death hasn't changed. Death is our enemy, present tense. In fact, you can say in every tense, past, present, and future, death is our enemy. Death was, in the beginning, the result of the fall, sin entering the earth, and the curse of sin coming upon us. Genesis two seventeen: on the very day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Continuing into the present, death is tied to sin and condemnation. Romans 6 23 right the wages of sin is death but the gift of God that's like the opposite eternal life and in in the future we go to the 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 idea of death continually being our enemy the last enemy it says here that will be destroyed and defeated we read about that in Revelation 21 way at the end of the Bible he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So from Genesis to Revelation, death is presented to us as an enemy, an enemy that has been defeated now for us in Christ Jesus. And I think we all know deep down that that's the case, that death is a foreign invader, a perversion of God's design. That death is our enemy. And it's easy to see when, say, a young person dies. I've done a few funerals for people who who kind of died in their prime, suddenly, unexpectedly. And it's interesting to me the things that people don't say. The platitudes that people have said when when a a very old person dies. they They don't say, you know, oh, well, it's for the best. Or he's in a better place, she's in a better place. We we don't tell each other these things because we know that they ring hollow, and I think we know that death is not the way it's supposed to be. Any time we look into a casket and see a loved one's face, whatever their age, people say things like, "Oh, she looks so good," "He looks so natural." And I'm always going, you think that's what that person looks like? I'm glad that they're not you know, like hearing you right now. I have friends that are undertakers and funeral directors in my line of work. You, you get to know them. They're wonderful people. They work with what they've got. They do their best. It always looks unnatural because it is unnatural. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Why then, at half the Christian funerals I've attended, has someone, often the preacher, Trying to convince me that death is a welcome visitor. The most natural thing in the world, maybe even something beautiful. It can even seem, as we read through the greatest theological minds of the ages, that often again and again we run into this idea. At least it seems so. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, maybe the greatest Baptist to ever live, maybe the greatest preacher to ever live, He said this, it is the very joy of this earthly life to think that it will come to an end. This isn't someone, I mean, he had depression, he did struggle in his life, but he had everything he might want to have a a happy life. And he did find much, much joy in it. But he said the real joy is that it will come to an end. And this is even more telling. He said, depend upon it. Your dying hour will be the best hour you have ever known. Your last moment will be your richest moment. Better than the day of your birth, will be the day of your death. Or an even more kind of O.G. Baptist. Go back even two more centuries to John Bunyan, who wrote A Pilgrim's Progress and several other important works. As he was dying, he said, Weep not for me, but for yourselves. Implying almost, well, it's better that I'm dying. You're the ones who have to stay on this place. Or D.L. Moody. We have a whole collections of dying words of saints that sound like they're just so excited to be dying. D.L. Moody, he said this in his dying moments. Earth recedes, heaven opens. I've been through the gates. Don't call me back. If this is death, it is sweet. Dwight, Irene, I see the children's faces. Dwight and Irene were his grandchildren who died before him. And we cling to this. I cling to this. This notion that we can come to death as Christians Not afraid, but emboldened and uh, anticipating what will happen. Trip Lee, one of my favorite artists, whose theology is maybe even better than his music. He has the lyric, death is just a doorway to take me to my faithful lover. Even the Apostle Paul, he seems to be on board with this occasionally. And we saw that in the first reading today. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain right the gain like it's I'm, this is good it's like even better better for me to die second corinthians 5 to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord i'll take it second timothy 4 6 through 8 let me read that one for i am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Paul's reaching out to death with not just a sense of peace, but of anticipation here, like a friend. Whatever death is, it seems it has no power over us if we are in... Christ and we find this to be true throughout the scriptures uh, Hebrews 4 uh, let's see 2 14 through 15 you don't have to flip all around I'll, I'll read it to you Hebrews 2 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death, We're subject to lifelong slavery. So we had been subject to slavery, the the devil keeping us through the fear of death, and now by destroying the devil and freeing us, we are no longer under the power of the fear of death. You are to have been freed from the fear of death. I think about uh, the Old Testament story in Genesis when Jacob is worried And Manahaim, he's he's like, "I, I know that I'm gonna see my brother tomorrow, and I know I did him wrong, to put it mildly. I conned him, then I scanned him, then I just stole outright from him. And also I know that he's a big hairy burly like killer, and that he's got all these Hittites and guys and all this. He's got his his Hittite wives. They could beat me up and take away all my stuff. I mean, so he's he's praying, he divides his family in half. Like if he kills half of them, the other half will survive. He's worried because tomorrow he meets an enemy on the enemy's turf, in, in the enemy's territory. And if that's going to happen, there is reason to worry. But when you read about Moody approaching our enemy death, guy doesn't seem scared. Not in the least. Don't call me back, he says. You see, Jacob's enemy had the upper hand in every way. Our enemy does not. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, our enemy is defeated, declawed, dethroned, humiliated, in chains. I think one reason that people often continue to fear death is that they are storing up their treasures here on earth. If you are storing up your treasures on earth, completely ignoring jesus command and warning not to well then every day closer to death is a day closer to losing your treasures everything you've worked for every day closer to leaving behind forever all of your treasures but if you are storing your treasures in heaven every day closer to death is a day closer to forever having your treasures securing them enjoying them throwing them at the feet of jesus Or to put it another way, for those who are not in Christ, this life is the best it will ever get. For those who are in Christ, this life is the worst it will ever get. So God has freed us from the fear of death. God has also freed us from the power of death. It's not like we're in denial here. We recognize this reality. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We see death's tyranny has been toppled. We see that here in 1 Corinthians 15, which Mimi read for us. Down there in that second passage, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And we can, with Paul, celebrate that we are freed from the fear of death, and the power of death, and yet we are not completely insulated from the effects of death. The truth of the gospel does not negate all of our sorrow in the face of death. When someone dies, it is good and right to mourn, to weep. Again, never a good idea to try and be holier than Jesus. Why do we have that wonderful verse, Jesus wept, that's wonderful because you could like memorize it in one second and get the prize at VBS? Why did Jesus weep? His friend Lazarus had just died. It says he approached the tomb, knowing he was about to raise him from the dead. The very presence of death, this invader, moved Jesus greatly. He wept. He was sorrowful. He mourned. Matthew Henry, what a wonderful quote. I won't read the whole thing. The gist is... Yes, when someone dies, they're not gone forever. Jesus said when he would be put in the grave, it was like a seed dying and going into the ground so that he would be uh, kind of raised forth to new life, like a seed bursting forth. Matthew Henry says when you plant a seed, you got to water it. And we, as Christians, water those seeds with our tears. When the body is sown, it must be watered. It is a great tribute to our deceased friends to mourn. What Paul says is don't mourn as those who have no hope. We have hope. We hold tightly to the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And and so don't, please, don't do this to your friends. If they're sorrowful, whether in the face of death or, or what, and you come along and say, listen, don't be sad. Don't cry. You know what? Bob wouldn't have wanted us to cry. Be happy. Think only of the happy times. The Bible tells us in Romans 12 to weep with those who weep, not to guilt those who weep into feeling like they should be celebrating. And please don't saddle your family while you're alive with this unbiblical garbage. When I die, please just don't cry. No sad service. Just play some happy songs and remember the good times. Remember, death is our enemy. But how do we then reconcile this frenemy situation where we have all these other texts where paul is saying yeah i'll I'll be gain I'll, I'll, i'll reach out and grab death right by the hand no fear and also anticipation well for starters we need to zoom out remember context those three rules of biblical interpretation context context and context it works for everything why is it that Bunyan said, weep not for me, but for yourselves? He went on to say, for I go to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will, through the mediation of his blessed Son, receive me, though a sinner. There, we'll, there we will meet to sing the new song and remain everlastingly happy, world without end. Wow, I hope I'm that articulate on my deathbed. Why did Spurgeon say that the moment of your death would be your richest moment, better than the day of your birth? He went on to say, it shall be the beginning of heaven, the rising of a sun that shall no more go down forever. And why did Triple say, death is just a doorway to take me to my faithful lover? Because that's what death has been reduced to. Our greatest enemy is now just a doorway. If you are in Christ. In fact, when we read uh, at a funeral, Psalm 23, in verse 4, we say what? Yea, though I walk, Through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. What's the the key word there? Through. Yea, though I walk through this valley. It's not that death is my, my goal, my end point. No, we are anticipating something beyond In fact, Revelation 2.10, Jesus says to one of these churches that's, that's suffering persecution, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you might be tested and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What exactly is Jesus telling us to look forward to? Death? No, the reward that lays beyond death. Same thing with that 2 Timothy 4 passage. What is is Paul excited about, even as his body suffers, that he's being poured out like a drink offering? Wow, what a sensation. No, it's the crown of righteousness that will be rewarded to him on the other side of his great enemy. This is a great comfort for the dying believer. It's a slightly lesser comfort for her friends and loved ones as they gather but it certainly is not some magic pill that removes suffering and turns death into our pal, and certainly not to be spoken of flippantly. I think of the book of Esther when I think of these things, our relationship to death. You've read the book of Esther? If you haven't, it's a wonderful book, and you ought to read it. I want two pages on what you liked about it next week. People sometimes confuse Esther and Ruth. They're both Old Testament books named after great women of faith. Two very different women, two very different books. In fact, in in Ruth, I always bring up in Ruth how the names perfectly fit. Like Ruth means friends, Naomi means pleasant, Boaz means strong, and it all kind of goes. In, In Esther, it seems kind of backwards to me as it hits my ear. Yes, you have Esther, the heroine of the whole thing. She's amazing. She's, she's beautiful. She's got this pretty name, and she's, she's brave and faithful and, and wise and all this stuff. But then you have that secondary hero, and you have the villain. You've, you've got Mordecai, right? Mordecai sounds to me like he'd be a bad guy. Mordecai, right? It sounds like a like Jafar or Maleficent or something, like a Disney villain. Uh, you know, I've never met anyone named Mordecai, even though it's a very prominent name in the old testament no jew no christian that i know and i think it's because it sounds nefarious but he's not nefarious he was a wonderful brave kind guy in the book of esther he saves the king's life he discovers this plot against the king and he exposes it he saves him he takes esther under his wing she's not his daughter but he cares for her he gives her advice he prays with her he he's helping her he's he's doing everything right this guy is, in many ways, one of the few true heroes of the Old Testament who doesn't remind us of the depravity of man at some uh, key turn. Then, on the other side, you have the villain. And his name is the most like friendly, chill thing ever. He's literally named, hey man. <laughs> hey man. Right, what? <laughs> Sounds like he'd be a nice guy, but he is the worst. He is such a villain. Haman is and Hitler would be fast friends. They both want the same thing, to exterminate the entire Jewish people. I, I mean, you can't imagine a more horrible villain to your story. Why is it that this guy, and he's got the juice, he's the king's right-hand man, he can get it done. Why is he so set on doing this? It's because one day, Mordecai walked by, and, and Haman was walking the other way, and Mordecai didn't bow to him no, no, I worship the true God. I don't bow to guys like you. Hey, man. And not only did he say, I I demand that you bow to me, he didn't just say, "I, I want to throw you in prison or I want to kill you. No, I want to kill your entire nation. And so he starts setting up this crazy master plan to wipe out the entire Jewish people in one day. Now You can't get into all the details. There's all these reversals in the book of Esther that show how God is just so sovereign. It's such a wonderful book. Again, read it if you haven't. But kind of the main turning point happens as Esther has already got her plan started in motion and there is a night when the king, Xerxes, can't sleep. He's got insomnia. God can actually use insomnia, which is wonderful news to someone like me. He can't sleep, and so he calls basically like the equivalent of the church clerk to come in and read the minutes from the old meetings right that's a good idea if you can't sleep but in he comes with the annals of the kingdom and starts reading through stuff that happened long ago and he gets to the point where Mordecai saved the king's life and he says did we ever thank that guy or do anything nice or celebrate him He says, I don't see where we ever did and the king says that's it forget sleep I am going to, I'm going to do something for this guy. I'm going to show my gratitude. And so he says, I got to call my most trusted advisor and find out what to do. He calls for Haman. Haman is feeling up. He's feeling big, right? Everything's going his way. He's got the king's signet ring on his finger. He's been invited now twice to dinner with the king and queen. The queen, Maybe she's a little standoffish, but she'll warm up to me, right? And he's built gallows, public gallows, where he plans to hang Mordecai. And they've set the date when all the Jewish people will be snuffed out. And so when he's called into the presence of the king and asked, let me ask you something, Haman. What should I do if I have one of my subjects that I really want to honor? I really want to do a good one for him. And of course, Haman thinks he's talking about me. And so he says in Esther 6, Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, whoever this guy is. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, just as you said, and go to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you mentioned. And you can hear the slow-mo like... A minute ago, he was freaking out that you didn't bow down and worship me because I am your most formidable enemy. And now he's got to dress him, put a crown on his head, get him on a a royal horse, lead him through the streets saying, this man is a great man and the king wishes to honor him. Let me ask you, has Haman become Mordecai's friend? (laughs) No, they're still enemies. And yet Haman has been humiliated and defeated and has no choice but to take him on the street, on the way to honor him. Death has not changed into our friend. It's been conquered, humiliated, as we read here, made a footstool for Jesus Christ. So much it has been tamed that it has to escort us through the city to our heavenly reward. Death does not change when we come to Christ. Our relationship with death does. In John 11, when Lazarus has died, Jesus says to one of his sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? To which she said, I believe. Can you say that? Yes, I believe. I believe that death has been defeated. And therefore, I am delivered from the power of death. I am delivered from the fear of death. Dane Ortland put it this way, For a Christian, death has once been a bitter-tasting poison, but now is a bitter-tasting medicine. It's the same stuff we've changed. Our relationship to it has changed. And we should hate death. It is our enemy. And you say, I thought we love our enemies. We love flesh and blood enemies. We hate the sin nature the devil the world's corrupt system and all of its injustice and we hate death and suffering because we love a god who has brought shalom into the world and is restoring shalom into the world there's a lesson here as well for times of tribulation when you're struggling when you're suffering when there are trials right the key word is through i know christians who think that those are the end goal, and they hold them tight. The kind of Marty Martyr situation, like, oh, yeah, see how much of this I've got? See how good of a Christian I am because I've got all these trials, and I almost begin to love them as if they were my friend. Like the Protestant version of standing waist-deep in a freezing cold river, flogging my bare back all night long. No, you shouldn't love your tribulations, In fact, you can hate what you're going through right now. It's okay. You're allowed to hate it. You don't have to pretend you love the struggles that you have, the sorrows that you have. If you're suffering right now, it's a result of sin. Not necessarily your sin, bringing about your suffering, but the curse of sin in the world. There's sin. There's death. There's the toil and sweat. There's the thorns. There's the pain and childbirth. All of these things come with the curse, and you're not supposed to love them. The reason that, like Paul, we can be content in all circumstances and give thanks in all circumstances and even praise God in all circumstances is because tribulation itself hasn't become a good thing. Rather, as with death, the ultimate result of the fall, God in his sovereignty uses tribulation as an entryway to something good. And in this case, that something is our increasing holiness, our becoming more and more like him. As Paul and James talk about us being kind of refined by the fire, burning away the dross so that which remains is more and more reflective of who Jesus is. This is what the Apostle is talking about in Romans 8 when he says, God works all things together for the good of those who loves him. When we endure, when we overcome, Scripture calls us to overcome to the end. That becomes our default, to say, I'm going through this and and God is using it taking this enemy, conquering it, chaining it up, and saying, no, you're going to just be the way to bring my disciple from point A to point B, and then point C, and then all the way into my presence. We endure to the end. Now, at the risk of over-quoting Spurgeon, like that's possible, Spurgeon said, dying is the last but the least matter that a Christian has to be anxious about the last thing that you have to worry about on your whole checklist, but it is indeed the least. And I want to remind you how Haman's story ends. He doesn't just get done carrying this guy through the street and say, well, that was humiliating. I'm going to try and forget it. No. He's built the gallows. He's set this thing in motion. Esther finally makes her move. She exposes what he's up to. He wants to kill my people. And Haman is executed hung from his own gallows. Oh, how does anyone tell me the Bible's boring? In our situation, Jesus has made his move and exposed our greatest enemy to shame. And, And our greatest enemy now carries us in procession to our reward. It's been reduced to that. But in the end, like Haman, death itself will be crushed and destroyed, hung on its own gallows. The last enemy to be destroyed will be death itself as we read here in first corinthians and that ought to be a great comfort to us it doesn't remove all sorrow it doesn't make it easy it doesn't make it our friend but it makes it an enemy that has no lasting hold on anyone who is in christ let me close with a quote from a guy named adoniram judson i am not tired of my work neither am i tired of the world Yet when Christ calls me home, I shall go with gladness. Let that be what each of our hearts says. I am not tired of this work that God has given me. I'm not tired of this world, but I'm ready to go. And you know what? As you get toward the end of your journey and you get tired like Paul, and I've been poured out like a, a drink offering. I've run the My race is done. I'm hanging out after the, the finish line, just sipping on my water, right? Listen. Death is not your friend, but death is an enemy that has been completely destroyed, teeth removed, shackled, chained, leashed. Our Lord Jesus is sovereign, and we are safe in his hands. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that while our greatest enemy, our last enemy is death, that you have defeated death through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that death could not hold our Savior back, and because He is the first fruits of those mourned from among the dead, the firstborn from among the dead indeed, that we too will be born again, raised to new life. That, Lord, we've seen our, our, our souls, our, our position before You cross from death to life, and one day we will indeed rise. We believe that. We believe that You are the resurrection and the life. And if we believe in you, though we die, we will not perish. And if we live and believe in you, we will not die. We do believe that. We answer yes. And we pray that you would comfort us then with that knowledge. That as we, as we live in a world where death seems to be all around us and it's friends, tribulation and trial and suffering and injustice and, and hatred, that Lord, we would remember these things are our enemies, but that you have overcome each and every one of them. Yeah. Remember the words of Jesus. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Lord, help us to take heart. In your holy name we pray. Amen. These cards are 11.